have you ever done a survey for your work? I'm betting many of us have. Maybe it's just a quick poll in SurveyMonkey or maybe a quick Google form that you send out to your constituents or some of your clients. I have a challenge for you though. How long and how much effort did you put into designing the questions that you ask in those surveys? If you're like most of us, the answer is probably not that much time. And my guest today is here to talk about why that's a big mistake that so many of us make. We are going to dive deep into what makes good surveys and unfortunately what makes some really bad surveys. We'll talk about common mistakes that come up when we're writing surveys and how we often just don't pay attention to the way that we ask questions, how we structure those questions, and most importantly, the impact that the questions we ask have on the recipients of our survey. Turns out that surveys is not just a benign thing. A bad survey can really damage the trust and the relationship that you have with your community. So it's important that we learn how to get them right. And today we're going to understand some of the ways that we can advance the way we do surveys. Hello and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, the podcast where we explore the human side of analytics to amplify the impact of nonprofits and social enterprises. With me, your host, Alexandra Mannering. Thank you for joining me today. I am very excited for today's guest, Kristen. She is going to be talking all about surveys and how we often do them wrong and how we can avoid that in the future. So Kristen, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me today. Um, I am Kristen Williams. I am a reformed college professor with a PhD in sociology. I have a love for data, um, even though it really ruins my street cred, especially survey data, which is why I'm here today. I am a stereotypical cat lady, so you may hear some cats meowing in the background um, as they are also attention seekers. Um, my background after I left academia is in the field of public engagement, uh, and basically that's a fancy phrase to say that I helped government agencies connect with their residents. So whenever they had an initiative or a project or something that they were working on where they wanted the public to have a say in that, my job was to go out there, explain what the government agency was doing, and then try to get people to talk to me and give us the information we needed to make informed decisions. And when I left that position, I started working in public engagement across the country, helping um, other municipalities, not just my own, uh, reach their public engagement goals. And during that process, I found that survey writing is just a weakness for most people because most people aren't trained in it. And I thought, well, this is a really good opportunity for me to do something I love, which is writing surveys, take off the plate the thing that most people hate, which is writing and analyzing um, anything from a survey. Um, and that's when I started my consulting firm, 1911. And of course, I had to ask you what 1911 stood for. And I do love, love the reference. Are you willing to share that? Yeah, absolutely. So as a proud North Carolina State University graduate, go Wolfpack. Um, 1911 is the uh, name of the building 
that houses the sociology department. And so this is my little nod of uh, gratitude to the professors who taught me how to be a, a good sociologist, um, dare I say great some moments, um, but also um, who instilled in me uh, this love for uh, survey writing. And I think surveys are such a critical part of organizations who are who exist to help communities, right? If you're here to improve the life of your community, regardless of the size of that community, whether you're talking about your neighborhood or you're talking about your country, in order to do that, you have to understand things about your community. And survey data is one of the best ways to get that. So I'm thrilled to be having this conversation about how we really can make sure that we do surveys right. Now, you help me understand that there's sort of two camps when we're talking about public engagement data. So can you walk us through those two camps? To start yeah, with. absolutely. So if I am, uh, let's say I'm an, a, pub, a public engagement specialist for a government agency or a nonprofit or an organization, there's typically two types of data that I'm going to be working with. You've got the participation metrics. So if I put a survey out there, how many people responded? If I held a public meeting, how many people showed up? Um, who are these people? Right. We look at a lot of demographics right? because we want to make sure we're reaching certain uh, groups of people, um, especially those who have been excluded from the process historically. So we look at those participation metrics and that's where a lot of the resource goes. All right. Um, and then the second type of data are the data that we actually collect once we reach people. So what are they telling us? What are they saying at these meetings? What are they telling me in the survey? So what data can I actually get from the questions that we put out there? So those are the two basic types of data that you're working with. And I think it's helpful to separate them because they each have their own challenges. They each sort of have different approaches that are gonna help you do better with them. And they both each need to be considered but they have different impacts on how you're going to analyze it, right? Your participation metrics are the ones that are going to tell you, does the second half actually matter, right? If you don't have good participation data in terms of you didn't get enough people, right? You got the wrong people. You didn't get a representative group of people, right? It's a non-random group and you've got bias in terms of the people that you did reach and the people who were excluded and you didn't reach. You have to understand that picture before you even move on to understanding the information that comes from the questions that you asked them or the information that you got. But to your point, we oftentimes put all of the effort into figuring out how are we going to reach people, right? We have a big plan for engagement and all of that, you know, which you've talked about. So let's talk a little bit about the side then that we forget. We've finally managed to get everyone at the table. We've made sure that we've we've gotten a representative group of people that we haven't accidentally excluded a group of people. Then we get them in front of them and we drop the ball in terms of what we actually ask them. So can we talk about what happens when we ask people, quote unquote, the wrong questions? Yeah. So an important distinction, right, and why I, I always think of these as, as different types of data is that the skill set needed to gather them and to understand them is often different. You can be amazing at community engagement. You can reach um, people who would have never talked to the government before, you can get them to the meeting, you can get them to answer your survey. However, you can be great at that and at the same time, write a horrible survey or ask the wrong questions in your public meeting, right? And so what ends up happening 
in this process um, time and time again is, is that, okay, we're, we're reaching people. We've got emails out. People are paying attention. We've got the news involved. We need a survey real quick. And they'll devote 10 to 15 minutes. They'll look around the room and say, who has time to do this right quick? And then that person drafts what they think are really stellar questions, may or may not even get a review, and then they send it out. And because most people, especially in um, government agencies, are not trained survey methodologists, most, most of the time, the, they're poor questions. Well, or they download the SurveyMonkey template. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I am just going to say right now, please don't do that. Um, and we'll get we'll get into that later. Um, but there is such a benefit to really focusing resources on both types of data and taking the time, the energy, the money, the effort to make sure that those questions are sound, right? Because if they're not sound questions, right? Um, you're going to get data that you can't use or is incredibly limited. So the strength of your data is always going to rely on the strength of the methods that you used to get the data. So if you ask a bad question, what you get, I don't care if you get 10,000 people to respond to that question, you can't use it because it wasn't worded correctly or it was confusing or whatever error was committed on that question. So your response rate doesn't matter because your tool was bad. For government agencies, especially, the weight of that is incredibly heavy because they're making big decisions with what people are trying to tell them. And often what ends up happening is like, we have three months to do this. Well, if at the end of that three-month period, your public survey closes, right? You've released this set of questions saying, hey, we want to do this thing in your community, right? Uh, what do you think about it? And they, they throw all these questions out there that aren't written correctly. Now they have, we can say, thousands of responses that they can't use, but they still have to make a decision. And so guess what that does? It makes them look bad. They're not making a publicly informed decision. They look bad. It frays public trust because now people are going, well, I told you what I thought. Or worse, they spot a bad survey. Right? Because you don't have to be an expert in survey writing to sniff out a bad survey. Countless times I've heard somebody say, nope, I don't trust this. There's something wrong with it. And they either close the survey altogether and then they're done ever taking a survey with your um, organization ever again, or they will use your survey to tell you how bad your survey is, how bad you are, how much they hate you. And in either case, you, you don't have data that you can use. And those effects are long lasting. I think that concept of trust is so important. And you you brought up that you can be really good from a trust building point of view in bringing people to the table. But if you don't have this, the necessary training in constructing surveys, you can violate that trust. And like you said, you fray it and it takes a long time to rebuild that trust. And I think the problem is I talk a lot about how we recognize innately that we don't naturally come understanding numbers. We're wary of statistics. You know, people are very quick to be like, I'm not a numbers person. 
but you're not going to find people who are like, I'm not a talking person. I don't know how to like say, say things. Most people will understand to some extent that they can express themselves verbally. And so I think because we think we, we know that we can talk, we assume that that means we therefore know how to write a question. Because I'm just asking someone a question. How hard can that possibly be? And yet, um, you know, what I'm going to ask you next about is all of the ways that we actually can get the simple act of asking a question wrong on a survey. Yeah. And one thing I want to point out before we jump into that is, you know, as we're talking about this and, and trust, I hear over and over this phrase survey fatigue. This is one of these things, especially in government right now, because COVID really transformed how government agencies interact with residents, right? Government business did not stop because of COVID. They had to pivot. And and so they relied more and more on surveys. And they say, people are just tired of answering surveys. And I'm going to counter that and say, people are tired of answering bad surveys that they think are irrelevant. Most people do not tire of helping develop their communities. They don't tire of having a say in what their neighborhood's going to look like in 5, 10, 20 years. They get tired of looking at questions that they know are not good, that will not lead to good results or at least results that are uh, beneficial to them. Uh, And so just in talking about the trust we, we sort of dismiss some of that and go, oh, well, people are just tired. People have been tired for a long time. We've been overworked for a long time, right? Um, they're just tired of bad surveys. Mm-hmm. They're tired of wasting their time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's an exhausting thing to waste your time. Yeah. It really is. So I, I agree very much with that, that a thoughtfully worded survey by an organization that's going to implement that and use it to actually affect positive change, most people are willing to put time into that. Let's have the fun part of going through some things that we mess up on survey questions. And I can be the first to admit that I've probably made all of these errors at one point or the other. My learning has definitely been one of learning through mistakes. So let's let's get started. What's What's mistake number one that you, you commonly see on surveys? So mistake number one is not just for municipal government or government agencies. This is something you learn as a survey methodologist that it's just a common, um, common set of errors. Um, the first is using double-barreled questions. So asking two or more questions in the same question, right? you're thinking, I'm going to be efficient I'm going to ask what somebody thinks about the new um, bicycle track on West Street, Jones Street, and Fayetteville Street, all in one. Well, I may have differing opinions about those, right, depending on which road I travel and all of these things. And so double-barreled questions, you think you're being efficient, but you're actually, you're asking too many questions and the data you get actually tells you nothing. You right. can draw no conclusions from that. Um, and relatedly, like other, you know, common survey errors, um, asking unintentionally asking leading questions, right, that can bias your results. Um, and, and the answer categories is a big thing. So let's say you're asking uh, a multiple choice question. So great, I'm going to make this really easy on my survey respondent. So I'm going to write the question and give them some options, right? And let them choose. It takes a second. Great. I'm Again, I'm being efficient. What generally happens though, is that we overlook some important categories, 
So we omit them all together. And so some people look at this and go, this doesn't fit me at all. I don't know what to answer. Or we have overlapping categories, right? And so you see this a lot with numbers. So people will say, what's your age, right? And the category or the, yeah, the potential categories will be 20 to 25, 25 to 30. Well, if I'm 25, what do I do there? You're not really getting the useful information from simple um, survey errors that we overlook. Because again, if you're not trained as a survey methodology, you're not thinking about this stuff, right? And so it's very common to make those type of errors. And then when you get into you know other fields, so whether here we're talking about municipal government specifically, but then you start making other types of errors that are more common in those types of fields. Well, and I love all of these things seem obvious when you say them. And yet we do that all the time. I mean, the number of times that, yeah, like I love the, well, is it, you've included my thing in two different places. Which one do I pick is such a classic one. Or conversely, you've given a single choice option and I'm two of the things. Even if the categories don't overlap, you know, like are you a, a mom or are you a professional? Right. Like, well, hang on. Now I'm, I'm both. <laughs> Which one? How do, how do I now tell tell you that I'm both of those things? Um, so that's those are all such simple things. And I think, again, the reason that we mess that up is when you and I are having a conversation, if I ask you, are you 20 to 25 or 25 to 30? You could look at me and be like, I'm 25. Which one do you want? I go, oh, OK, do the 20 to 25 one. And we forget with the survey, like, I don't get to sit there and guide you over your shoulder. All the things that people have is what you put on that survey page. And so if there's any confusion, if there's any lack of clarity about it, they're on their own and they're going to take their best guess or, like you said, walk away because they're tired of this being confusing. Now, one of the other mistakes that, that you and I chatted about goes back to that trust issue where, let's say, on a survey, I ask you for your sexual orientation. No explanation, I just say, what's your sexual orientation? Like, what's that gonna do to someone filling out a survey? Yeah, so demographic questions, uh, one, of my, one of my must-haves on most initiatives, right? I need to know who I'm talking to because I need to know who I've reached. If I haven't reached particular groups, how can I do this in the future? However, big errors come uh, with demographic questions when we ask questions like what's your sexual orientation and we use um, very non-inclusive outdated categories that are either um, not just outdated but offensive right or don't really represent how people currently identify and this can be sexual orientation it could be gender identity one of my biggest pet peeves as a sociologist is when people say, what is your gender? And the options are male and female. So just a quick lesson <laughs> for those who did not ask for it. Male and female are not genders. Those are sex categories and they are not inclusive. So even if you say man, woman, which are gender categories, there are, there are so many people who don't identify in either bucket. And so what ends up happening is you lose those folks because you are telling them whether you mean to or not, that they are not included here, right? You did not consider them. And then you think about other groups of people um, who 
are not just offended, but they don't trust why you're asking these questions. And so one of the biggest mistakes um, with demographics as well is asking the questions out the gate without explanation. So you're saying, tell me your race, your income, these very personal things, but you're not saying why. And so when I was at the city of Raleigh, we found that people were far more likely to offer that information if we asked it at the end of a survey, right? Let me show you that this is worth your time first. This is quality stuff. And then I'm going to ask you at the end of the survey, but I'm going to lead in with an explanation as to why we're asking these questions and how that information will be used. And we just saw a, a tremendous increase in the number of people who would self-identify at that point. And that builds trust over time. And it is true because I've definitely been asked questions, some that are personal and some that I'm just like, why do you need to know that? And it's amazing how even with an innocuous question like, when's your birthday? There's a part of me that's like, if you haven't explained how you're going to use that, like Snapchat will ask me when my birthday is. I'm like, do I really want you to know that? <laughs> you haven't told me what you're going to do with that. I'm not sure that I want you to know that. And I think with surveys, it's even more important because we are asking some very probing personal questions. And if we don't understand how that's going to be used, it's very easy for us to think about it being misused. And if we don't know how you're going to keep it safe, I think that's a really important thing to include. Like, are we going to use this to try to reverse engineer who you are? No, this is going to be used to make sure that we represented everybody and then we will disaggregate it from your answers. Or if we're going to break out your answers by this, we will make sure to mask any answers, you know, that are below a certain number of respondents or, you know, whatever it might be, that those things are really important. And it goes back to fraying trust when you don't ask the questions in the right way. And I mean, I even think you wouldn't walk up to somebody on the street and be like, hey, I had a question for you. How old are you? What race are you? Right? Like, those are not the questions you start with. Right. And I think this principle, I mean, with demographics, you always have to be um, explicit, right? With this set of questions, I, I try to keep them separate um, from the survey. So if you do it like an online survey, um, it, it may be like a, on a different page or something like that. And you explain, but with the survey itself, explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. I, I can't tell you the number of surveys I've opened with zero lead in. And it's like, well, what are you, what are we doing here? And also if I answer this, is this just for funsies? So you can say that you did it, or is this going to planning commission to help inform what they're going to decide about this thing happening in my neighborhood? Where's this going? Who's seeing it? Right. If I give you my name and email, cause you've asked, is this public? Is this public comment? Is this on public record? And I think all of those things, you know, people get scared of saying too much when it comes to explaining to people why they're there and why you're asking them questions. It's critical to have that lead in and then specifically um, for those demographic questions as well, like address those separately. And I, I like the idea of creating the sections of saying these questions are for this thing. Here's why. And here's what's going to happen to it. Then these questions are for these things. And here's why. And like, here's what we're going to do with that. I think that makes it a really good thing. Another thing that actually just dawned on me as well is that thinking about, you know, how will the questions that you ask together come across too? Because it could be possible to ask two individual questions that by themselves don't really cause a problem. But when you put them together and you ask someone like these things together that suddenly they're like, what, 
what are you you doing with this? I think about a friend of mine who had majors in chemistry, Spanish, and business. And someone looked and was like, are you planning on being a Colombian drug lord? <laughs> I think survey questions can kind of do that, where there's nothing wrong with being a Spanish major. There's nothing wrong with being a chemistry major. You start putting things together and you kind of go, wait. You know, that's the amazing thing. Exactly. So when I tell people I'm a survey methodologist, right. And I I take the, like I said, the blow to my ego um, because nobody's impressed by that, but part of what you learn and why it matters that somebody who is trained in this does it is because you're right. Part of what we learn is just not, how do I ask the question in the right way? But there's another part of that, which is in the right order. Right. There is, there's a, a science to this, of course. Um, and then there's an art to it, right. And mastering both sides of that. It's like, okay, we need to not just know the wording of the question. How long is this survey going to be? What words are we going to use? Are people going to understand it? But also if I ask it in this order, is that the appropriate way to do this based on what I'm trying to do? Right. So it, it, that's exactly what it is. And it could be that, you know, you look like a drug lord and it, and it could be that un- unintentionally it looks leading because of the order when it's not really leading. You're just trying to capture all angles, um, but the optics look bad because of the way that it's been organized. Yeah, I was thinking about you could you could have a series of questions of like, how many hours do you spend with you know at work? How many hours do you spend with your children? How well are your children doing at school? (laughs) And and you're like, well, hang on. Am I not spending enough time with my kids? And therefore they're like struggling at school. And like, you didn't intend that, but because all of a sudden all the answers change. Nope. Never mind. Never mind. (laughs) Yeah. I spend tons of time with my kids. Yes. And so, and again, it was totally innocuous. It wasn't intentional, but you're not there to explain why you're asking those questions. So you can have both the intentional leading. Like when I, ask my husband, like, don't you like this shirt? <laughs> like there's, there's an intended answer there, but also unintentionally leading, which I think is harder to recognize when you aren't trained necessarily in, in skills. Another question that we talked about demographics and how they're really important, but what about asking questions like that ask them to identify something about themselves or even identify themselves? What should organizations kind of consider when it comes to should they include those questions? Yeah. So I would say two big ones, right? The first two big questions would be one, is this absolutely necessary, right? Because anytime you ask for really personal identifiers, so there's demographic questions, which can mask an identity still, right? But you're asking name, you're asking home address, anything that like, you know who this is, email, anything like that is a barrier to entry. You are creating an obstacle for somebody to participate. You should only do that if it is 100% necessary. And in in government, sometimes it is. So there are certain laws um, and and protocol procedures that says if somebody is going to comment on this particular type of thing, it has to go on public record with their name and their um, home address, for example, right? The key though is one, it's necessary and people know that. So if they log online to fill out this survey form to give their comments, they have been warned, this is public record. People are going to see this stuff, right? So that first thing, is this necessary? If it's not necessary, don't do it. The second thing is, 
how are you going to, if it is necessary and people are going to give you this, how are you going to manage that sensitive data? If I have somebody's personal information attached to their survey responses, and it's not part of public record, it's just there because let's say I asked them because uh, I want to send them a follow-up, right? I want to close the feedback loop, as we say, and let them know here are the results of the survey or here's another way to give input or something like this. What you should be doing in the second consideration is making sure that those things are then detached. Once you gather that information, separate those survey results from those personal identifiers so that you use them separately. If you are working with a survey methodologist, they're going to advise you to go ahead and collect those things separately. Um, but if you've already done that you're on the same survey, you're saying, hey, um, sign up for updates. And also let me ask you some questions. Then it's up to you uh, to be responsible with how that data uh, not only stored, but also reported out. Right? So you want to make sure that anything public facing isn't um, identifying those respondents and, and how they um, responded to your survey. Mm -hmm. No, and I think that that's really important. In, in healthcare data, um, there's a concept in under HIPAA, the laws that regulate sensitive health information of the minimum necessary, that you're always obligated to only use the minimum necessary pieces of information about health. Like, it doesn't matter if this would be kind of like nice to have. If you don't need it, don't use it. <laughs> Strip it out. Don't include it in your data set. Like, only minimum necessary information. And I think that that's really important. Yeah, so there's this recent, very recent, like live right now um, in the world example of a barrier to entry that did not go as planned uh, for a local municipality. They release a survey asking for uh, public opinion about some decision making that they want to do. Uh, and I won't get into specifics because I'm going to protect them. But all you need to know for the story, right, is that it's a pretty contentious issue. Um, people on both sides feel very, very strongly about it. And um, it is from a city council that does not have a lot of public trust. So they released this survey. There's no lead in, like we talked about. So what, what are we doing here? Um, and why are these things being considered? So you want my opinion on these things, but I don't really know what's going on and why this is on, you know, wh why this is out there. Why are you asking? Um, but worse is uh, when you go to respond to the survey, there's a little pop-up. It's an online survey. And so the little pop-up comes on and says, hey, uh, before you can respond to this, we need your name and your email address. And so there's people like me who was like, nope, and I close out, like, this is a contentious issue. I cannot think of a single reason you need me to sign in. So I, I don't trust this. There's something weird, probably nothing nefarious. I don't know, but probably nothing nefarious. But people learned that you could sign in with a fake email. And so now that survey is flooded with fake emails and fake names of people denouncing the city council and the municipality and the survey. So they're not getting the data that they're looking for. Now people are just even more mad. 
which is even if somebody then logs in to answer the questions legitimately, they've already been biased by the comments that are public and right there for them to see denouncing this council. And so it's, you know, if you just want to be really, really careful and ask that pivotal question first, is this really necessary? And if the answer is no, or maybe the answer is probably no, right? Let it go. Unless it's an immediate resounding yes. Yes. If it's it. like, like by law, we have to do this. If, if yeah. these comments are going to count, then yes. And then tell people, but in my many years of doing this work, there are very few cases where it is required to ask those questions as part of the survey. And especially in this case, what was so, so egregious is that just in order to answer a single question, so you, you've already created, like I said, that barrier to entry, you're dissuading people who already don't trust you, and it, it is not going well. And, and despite the criticism, they're sticking to their guns. They're going to go ahead and keep that thing on lock. Um, and, and what you're going to find is not just that people are upset, but there's no telling what that did to their response rates and the representativeness of that sample. There's no, we, we can't measure that. We don't know. And not only does it screw up their data, so they're not going to be able to use that data. Let's be honest. Anything that comes out of that, even if there are good responses in it, the noise around it's just going to completely ruin it. But on top of that, they've further damaged their own reputation. And I think this is a really important thing is like questions are not harmless. Doing a survey is not like a net neutral activity of, oh, well, if we screw it up, yeah, we won't be able to do it. It's a waste of some money, but who, like that's it. No, no, you can do serious damage to your reputation, to your community, to your relationships, because your name is on that survey. And so you really do need to be conscientious that this is this is not a harmless, oh, well, if we make a mistake kind of situation. So. Exactly. Long lasting effects. And you wouldn't think it, right? Sure. Like it's just a couple of questions that I threw um, on a survey monkey or a Google um, form and I sent it out. It, like the, the repercussions are, are incredibly real and they are long lasting. They truly are. Yes. I wanted to talk a little bit about question types because there are upsides and downsides to each different question type. We talked a little bit about mistakes you can make in multiple choice questions, right? Not offering the ability to select multiple options when I might fall into multiple categories, having my categories overlap or not be completely inclusive, right? That I don't include somebody's answer as one of the multiple choice. Um, but there's also downsides to having open response where anyone can just fill anything in. So can you talk a little bit about that tension between multiple choice and open response and, and how we can navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. So you have the traditional, uh, the what we call the closed ended responses, right? I'm going to give you a question and then a set of predefined answers. You can choose one, you can choose multiple, you can rank depending on the question type, right? And then we have the open-ended where I'm just going to give you a prompt and I want you to tell me your response. Both are fantastic depending on what you're trying to do, right? And, and I, the strongest surveys will generally have elements of both because you get the hard, fast numbers from those choose one, choose multiple, the rankings, and then you get a lot of the whys. What are people thinking? What why are they prioritizing it this way, right, from those open-ended? Common errors come when somebody writes a survey 
I said that very snarky, somebody um, accusatory, um, somebody writes a survey and they think the easiest thing to do is just ask all open-ended questions, right? And so I don't have to come up with the answer categories. I can avoid those errors that that Kristen woman was talking about, and I can just let people speak for themselves. In theory, it sounds wonderful. In practice, it doesn't work that well when you have too many of those questions because one, uh, people do get tired of answering like 10 open-ended comments in a row, okay? Especially if those things overlap and they're like, I just told you this, right? Okay, I'm done with this. Um, Two, you have to code (laughs) the responses that you get, which takes a tremendous amount of time. You can't just open an Excel file and run a little query and say, oh, 10 people said this, 500 people said this. This is, you got to go in. If you're doing it ethically and correctly, you have to go in. You got to read those responses. You're going to be reading them several times, not just one time, right? Because you're looking for themes and then you got to make sure everything's coded correctly. Then you got to make sure nothing was left out. Then you got to make sure you're catching sarcasm. Like there's a lot of elements. And believe me when I say there are people trained in this. So if you ask too many, you have all these comments, you're like, oh, wow, right? What do I do with this? What is this saying? So an example, I worked on a survey. We had a few open-ended questions, but because this thing, when I say contentious, this takes the former example to the next level, okay? People are mad about this thing. So they had a lot to say. And we're talking paragraph, like essays. They're writing college-level essays, right? We had over 10,000 individual comments. And that's not just the length. That's just individual comments. Then you take into consideration the length. That is wonderful. Hypothetically, you then have to go and read those 10,000 or you're doing a disservice to your public. Could we have captured a lot of that sentiment in close-ended questions if we had done it correctly? Absolutely. So it was cool because I got to code some 10,000 comments, um, but also if you don't have the time, the resources, the capacity, the skill set to do that, then not only do you risk not getting it done and those comments just sit there, but you're not actually doing legit data analysis, which does a disservice, like I said, to the public. On the other side, you see the error of using the wrong question type because we don't often think through, right? So we've already touched on one where it's like, well, you're asking me to choose one, but I'm actually multiple, right? Common error. Um, but one of the most common in uh, like government work is a lot of stuff hinges on priorities, right? Like we have all of these options. We need you to tell us what we should prioritize, right? And so uh, what often happens is they'll put out a question um, that says, pick your top three, right? Just select three. And because a lot of this is online now, right? You can hit the buttons and three light up and you move on. But then they look at the data and, and or they'll turn to somebody like me and say, Kristen, uh, what's the number one priority? I can't actually tell you that. From the question you asked, it could be that it, you know, more people selected something, but it would have been their third priority. The first priority for people could have been across the board. 
and doesn't even end up in the top three that you see. Right. It's not that this is the gold standard survey question. It's that you have to ask the right kind of question based on what you need it for. And it's funny, I'm pretty sure in every single podcast interview I do, we get to the point where it's like, you have to start with first, what are you trying to do with this information? And if it's that we could only do three projects, so we need to know the top three and we're cutting everything below it, then choose your top three is the right question because it doesn't actually matter what order they're in. So why make people have to pick? But if you're going to get it down to one or you need to know, you know, does everyone agree on the top one or are there two that are in hot contention, then you need to ask a rank order question. So you really do need to know what are you trying to do with that information in order to, to, to select the correct one. And then you have to be aware of what resources do you have to process that information. Exactly. I tell everybody that survey writing is like the moonwalk. You start in your position and then you work backwards. And that's how it should be every single time. Every time you don't just sit down and draft questions. You have to start with what do I need to know? Now let me smoothly, graciously, and with amazing skill work my way backward to get a product. I love that survey moonwalks. All right. So we've we've highlighted a lot of things that people need to think about. And if you know, I could feel a little, a little bit overwhelmed of how could I possibly do all of this right. So what do we do to make sure we avoid all of these very costly pitfalls? Yeah, so I think the simplest thing, right, it's easy for me to say, is hire somebody who is trained, not just if we talk about public engagement, for example, not just in public engagement, but in survey methodology, it's not just about reaching people, but what do I ask them when I finally get them to the table? Is that always easy to find? Are there like a ton of survey methodologists itching, right, to leave academia? Yes. Um, <laughs> but um, do, do government agencies, nonprofits, et cetera, also, uh, always have the resources to get them? Not as much. It's a big ask, right? But if you have somebody interviewing, it is worth asking have you been trained in, you know, uh, survey methodology or what's your experience in this? And anybody who's trained in it will know what that means, right? It's a really good test if they're like, what are you saying? You're like, oh, that's a no. Short of hiring somebody internally, right? you hire a consultant, somebody like myself, a 1911 consulting that specializes in this work because they're, again, survey methodologists. So if you can't do internal, and for a lot of organizations, you won't need that full time, but recognizing this is coming up, we should probably bring in somebody to at least help us get started, if not get us to the finish line, right? So there's a lot of different times to bring in a consultant. I would err on the side of earlier the better, because laying the foundation is gonna be you know, crucial to the success of your survey. You know, if it's if your resources are really really limited, you can bring in consultants to host professional development sessions to at least train your staff on the basics. Right? Here are common pitfalls like we're talking about today. Here are common pitfalls. Here's how to avoid them. Here's what to look for. Right? If I'm reading a question and there's an and in there, or an or, my brain automatically says, Kristen, look at that again. Is that a double-barreled question or is this legit? Right? So teaching those skills for your staff who are going to be responsible for survey writing 
um, is a way to use those resources, even if they're limited. You know, if you have no, like, Kristen, I can't hire anybody right now. Have you seen numbers like COVID, et cetera, right? The best advice is to, like I said, moonwalk backwards, right? Um, start with that process of what do I need to know? Work your way back to a solid question. And then if nothing else, write it, test it, rewrite it, retest it over with different groups of people, different demographics, people who don't know your field, people who do test that thing a million times until somebody's like, okay, looks good. And that's going to take planning, right? That takes time. You got to build that into the process. But if nothing else, it may not be perfect, but you are testing it, right? Which is going to be critical. Well, and just getting other people, like you said, with different backgrounds, different experiences, different, you know, they, they know your field, they don't know your field they'll pick up on some of that. So if you ask somebody who's a working mom, they'll point out, well, you made me choose between being a professional and being a mom. Heads up on that. But you wouldn't recognize that if you just asked, you know, single men or whatever, they wouldn't pick up on that. So you have to ask different groups to give you those different responses. And so you can kind of do these pilot tests of your survey and people can pick up, well, why are you asking me this thing? And they'll help you know that. The other thing you can do is reuse successful surveys or pieces of successful surveys. So if you found you got a lot better response when you asked, you know, your sexual orientation question this way versus that way, recognize that question worked better and keep that and use that wording. In fact, this is a thing in in survey in surveys is this idea of a validated question where we've tested the wording of this question. We know this wording and these answers work well. So just reuse that exact thing. Um, and if you hire someone to come help you develop those, it's not doesn't have to be a one and done. You can keep those resources and reuse them as you need. Yes. And that's where, you know, we mentioned templates earlier. And I just want to come back to that quickly because the temptation is I, I bought access to this platform and they have these templates and I can click on it. The thing about those templates is that they are not going to fit your needs. But if you are, like you said, if you are looking at the successful questions that you've asked in the past, right, and the types of questions that you've asked in the past that have got you really good responses, really great data, you're building essentially your own templates, which I think are, are great to use, but relying on other people's work. And again, I can't vouch for who's writing those. So it's like, you're not always going to get what you need from somebody else's predefined questions, but you will get what you need if you've mastered what you're asking in your needs. Well, I think we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. And we may have to bring you back because I really want to get to the idea of how you analyze survey data. But I think We've covered enough ground in this one. So this has been such a fabulous, fabulous conversation. I am sure a lot of people listening are going to want to follow up with you. So how could people find you? Yeah, so my uh, website is 1911consulting.com. It's all spelled out, uh, no numbers in there, because I like to make things complicated. Uh, You can also find me on LinkedIn as Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, Williams. I think there's an N in there in the middle, just to throw you off a little bit. I am Kristen at 1911consulting.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kristen. This is such interesting stuff. 
And I think that this is so valuable because survey data is critical as we started at the beginning for anyone who is trying to do work within a community. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. That was Kristen Williams from 1911 Consulting. We talked about so many ways that you can make mistakes in surveys. We also covered a lot of really great things that can help you up your game. So the first is if you have the bandwidth and you do a lot of surveys, hire a person for your staff who is trained in survey methodology. If maybe you don't have a full-time need for that, hire a consultant for a project to make sure you get that survey right. If you don't have the funds to hire a consultant, consider training for a broad array of your staff so that they all can be armed to develop good surveys and spot problems in other surveys. When you're building your own surveys, make sure that you're using the most appropriate question type and that you're really asking the minimum necessary information. You can test your questions on a diverse and representative group of people. Right? If you're targeting a certain group that you want to reach, make sure that you are testing your questions on that kind of people, whether it's particular role or particular demographic or location or whatever it might be. Once you've either worked with a consultant or you've got staff who are trained in it um, and you've tested these questions, make sure that you build your own bank of validated templates and questions. If you find out that asking a question about, say, somebody's geographic location or um, somebody's uh, perception on whatever you, you're interested in and you might have a need for that question again, Keep those questions that worked so you can reuse exactly that wording the next time that you need to ask that question. If you would like to learn more about surveys, definitely recommend that you check out 1911. We'll also link to some of Kristen's fabulous resources on our show notes page. So you can head to heartsouldata.com and find those notes right there um, and some downloads that Kristen's going to share with us and you can access them. So again, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you stay well, take care of yourself and others if you can. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanus, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at Maracanos.com. M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com. M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.